0: He was my soulmate back (laughs) (laughs) then. And he had kidney disease for 13 of those years, and so Yeah, uh,
1: it's so so funny that you say that, because I think everybody has one animal that is kind of their soul animal. I don't say soulmate, because otherwise my husband will be very upset too, but (laughs) that is a soul animal where, um, you know, that never will be replaced, that you have so many memories with, and most of the time it's an animal that went through a lot of phases with you. Sorry for saying Sorry Media
2: presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kerpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek.
1: Hello, this is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, and this is the Per Podcast, and it's a very special podcast this time because we have a very special co-host. Yes, Dr. Susan, sadly couldn't be here, but we found the perfect replacement, and that is?
3: Dr. Kelly St. Denis.
1: Awesome. So Dr. Kelly St. Denis is here. Dr. Kelly, tell us a little bit about yourself.
3: Well, I am, like Susan, a board certified practitioner in feline medicine and uh, was much inspired by her in the years that I worked with her um, her in the early 2000s. I recently sold uh, my own clinical practice and mostly am planning on doing some lecturing and writing as well as a little bit of clinical practice and some local area cat practices.
1: That's awesome. We'll talk about that for sure. And I'm so happy that you're on with us because uh, the guest that we have today, I totally love. She is amazing. Um, and I was like, okay, when Susan is not on, let's talk about surgery only. But this guest is not really a surgeon itself. And we'll introduce her very, very soon. So I needed to have a companion that would dive with me into feline internal medicine much more than surgery. So uh, our guest is the amazing Dr. Sherry Ross. Hello, Sherry. Hi Sherry. Oh, is Sherry still there? Oh, oopsie! I think she just fell off the line, but it doesn't matter. So, um, uh, so this is why we're live. Uh, hopefully, she will be back soon. Uh, but uh, the uh, so you said you just sold your practice. Wow, that's a big step.
3: Yeah, it is a big step. Yeah, with big changes for me. So moving from clinical practice. Yeah, and I think we have
0: Sherry back. Hi Sherry. Awesome. I just, I oh, just did, minor technical difficulties yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's always the way right yeah, i just did this amazing introduction
1: for you for you sherry so tell us a little bit about yourself
0: so i am um an in internal medicine boarded in internal medicine i went to school in eastern canada yay PEI. Yay, yay. Um, <laughs> so, um did all of my internship residency all that stuff in minnesota and was there for a few years with with at the Uralis Center and at the university, um, trained with with Jody and Dr. Osborne, Jody Lulich, and Dave Polzin, and then moved down to sunny Southern California, San Diego, um, with the UC Davis has a satellite uh, clinic down here in San Diego and came down for one year to do a a one year hemodialysis fellowship and that was 14 years ago. So still here, (laughs) still here. to, to the point that actually all of my cats I currently own were born in southern california um i just not long ago lost one that i had gotten in canada in vet in school. So. oh, oh how old was that. that cat i'm 21 wow 20,
3: uh,
1: that's yeah. a that so <laughs> that cat has has gone through a lot of different things with you then
0: oh yes he has he was my that don't tell my husband but he was my soulmate that cat <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, and he had kidney disease for 13 of those years and so yeah
1: it's so funny that you say that because i think everybody has one animal that is kind of their soul animal i don't say soulmate because otherwise my husband will be very upset too but that is a soul animal where um you know that never will be replaced that you have so many memories with and most of the time it's an animal that went through a lot of phases
0: with you yes and he he certainly did i mean he went all the way from from vet student on to whatever I'm doing, now, <laughs> which <laughs> basically, basically full-time nephrology and urology, but, um, so yeah, he went through a lot with me. He was
3: and who's better care to be him than someone who's a specialist in kidney disease, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's, uh, but 21 years, wow, that's, that's, that's a good age, uh, for, for a cat. Uh, but, uh, definitely. Yeah. It's, it's a long time, a long time. And it's always tough when you, Lose something that's really close to your heart.
0: It is. It is, and I—I I, I mean, I love my other cats as well, very, very, very much. But they just don't have the same. That cat knew me better than I did, which I know sounds really odd, but I mm. did. So, how
1: did you become a cat person?
0: It, oddly enough, I wasn't a cat person. Um, I, when I, I growing up, we always had dogs, and we had some farm animals as well. But, um, and all through vet school, I, with cats, I wasn't necessarily, and then. I got one (laughs) and and, and things have not uh,
1: changed everything
0: it changed everything Um, the first cat I got I got my first cat the year before I got my my soul cat Um, but my first cat Tay just a wonderful cat and realized that it wasn't really fair for me to have a dog at the time just time commitment as a vet student I was afraid I wouldn't be able to give enough attention to a dog and and she was just I mean she was the perfect cat too so I, yeah, I think people who say they're not cat people have never owned a cat and I think they've owned a cat that we would absolutely change, change the world if everybody had
3: a cat. There's (laughs) there's that saying that uh, people who don't like cats just haven't met the right one. Mm. Uh, It really does come down to that soulmate thing.
0: (laughs) I agree. I agree. So
1: Kelly, how many cats do you have right now?
3: Um I currently have three in my house and my daughter has one who is an emotional support animal with her at college. <laughs> so sometimes four. She comes to visit grandma sometimes.
1: <laughs> yeah, so let's talk a little bit about cats and, and obviously Sherry, your 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 very famous about what you do in nephrology and in urology. And, uh, and and we had some other guests talk about urology, but we didn't have that many guests talk about nephrology yet. So uh, so I really would like to dive into into kidney disease in, in cats a little bit. And, and and obviously we have the acute forms, but especially the chronic form of kidney disease. Uh, it is a, 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 a slow moving disease in the cat, but it is very prevalent, isn't it?
0: Extremely prevalent. Yeah. I mean it is it is a slow moving disease and to the point that many cats, you know, if you've been tracking blood work on them, they may be within the normal range. But what I always say is don't look at the ranges, look at the number for creatinine for SDMA. And if you see those, you know, if the cats come in for a geriatric screen every year and every year the creatinine's 0.3 higher. I doubt that cat's putting on muscle mass unless it's, you know, working out. Uh, But more often they're losing muscle mass so the creatinine should actually be going down with age, not up. Um, So if you do see that trending up, that cat has got early kidney disease. Um, And you need to investigate further because the earlier we find these cats and the earlier we identify them with kidney disease, the more we can do to help them. We know we can, you know, keep them feeling better longer with proper nutrition and and interventions.
3: It really highlights that need to get our senior cats in. So in my practice, I had my senior cats in every six months. And if the clients were able to afford it, we were doing blood work. And and I I always had a trending chart because it's exactly what we were looking for was trends, in their creatinine changes in their usg estimate if we were running it um yeah and we were finding you know those IR stage twos that they can they can benefit from some therapy or diets right so
0: yeah and that's the ideal if you can get them in every six months um especially for older cats i would say any cat over the age of 10 and i know i'm a little i'm a little jaded because i see so many cats with kidney disease but it's so common and certainly if, if the cat's age ends in the word teen, it needs to be seen every six months. So any double-digit cat, I, we need to screen for, for kidney disease.
1: Yeah, so can you help uh, veterinarians a little bit? Because we, we also know that cat owners are probably the worst in bringing the animal to the vet. So how can we convince cat owners to bring in their cats earlier? So I like the idea when they're in their teens, they have to be at least every year. But how can you convince a cat owner of doing that?
0: you know, I, I wish I had the magic answer to that to know. but I think maybe even, you know, some sort of program we're saying, okay, now that your cat's double digits, um, these are the things that could be going on and that could be silently going on. And I think it's awareness for the owners if we can kind of educate them. But I know it's tough when you've got owners that, you know, sometimes the first time they go to the vet is when they're losing weight and vomiting and, you know, are fourteen years old, um, but even with the vaccinations and everything, when they're going in, if we can, you know, educate people saying once they've they a certain age, and and I mean, I'm paranoid, and I would screen everybody. All my cats get blood work every few months because I'm insane, but but I, and I think that's that's excessive, but um, but having having them. You know, say these are the diseases that can occur and having a baseline, I mean, trying to emphasize how important it is to have that baseline and to know what that animal's normal values are. So if there is a change, if it does come in sick, we can compare that. So, so this you know, it, this, yes. this needs
1: to come with the disclaimer, don't do this at home. But what is a, a uh, reasonable regular rate of checking blood work in the cat? According to
0: I I think I think if certainly if it's double digits every six months, it would be like that would be ideal for and for me. Um, And as Kelly said, if you have a means of trending it a lot of the lab programs will trend the values for you. So, you know, I don't expect people to whip out pieces of graph paper or anything, but if you can trend those and and just look at the slope of the line if it's going up be concerned or if it's staying the same but the cat's weight's declining so i it's really important that you trend those you know sdma creatinine bun make sure you trend it with weight as well because if the weight's changing that can that can mean a lot and then you
1: you mean weight, uh, you know, muscle mass probably, and not really fat, because exactly. cats can still be fat and lose muscle mass and still be at risk. Uh, Kelly, okay. you want to say something?
3: Oh well, yeah, I was just going to say exactly that thing. So I mean, we weigh the cats and watch their body weight, but also we body condition score them and muscle condition score them with the Wasawa guidelines every time they're in, and I teach the owners how to do it at home. So. Because as you pointed out, Sherry, that also impacts how you interpret those creatinine values. So if there's changes going on there too, then that's obviously going to be an issue.
1: And for our audience, can you explain what the best way to do a muscle condition scoring in a cat is?
3: So the, the guidelines from WASAVA are um, pretty easy going. They talk about mild, moderate, and severe muscle wasting. But essentially, when you're putting your hands on the cat in the physical exam, I'm just feeling to see how bony they are. So if there's a loss of muscle mass, uh, normally you wouldn't be able to spe- feel the vertebra- vertebral spine is- processes along the back, but when you run your hand along the back, if you can feel that, if their shoulder blades are more prominent, even if the top of their head is more prominent, um, then those are signs that they're, they're wasting some muscle. And you may find that in their limbs as well, but I tend to focus on the back um, and the head and shoulders. And then there's a diagram it's helpful, yeah.
0: And, and we do the same. We, we body condition score, muscle condition score, every animal that walks through the door. I think that's really important because there's a lot of older cats that have the big pooch, <laughs> the belly pooch. Um, and, but if you feel them, they feel like a stegosaurus along their back. because Yeah. There's a lot and you of- know,
3: you can really empower people with that because I found with my clients, the ones that I trained, um, I then had people calling in to book an appointment because their cat was muscle wasting. Right, So they're totally on board and they know what's going on and they're they're there, like something's going on because now the cat feels bone, so they know, they
0: know. And that, and that's fantastic when you've got owners with that kind of buy-in, but yeah. it does it a little training early on often gives you a lot of payoff later on. Yeah, we try
3: um, to engage them
0: early, yeah.
1: It, it stresses the fact to do good history, uh, including nutrition history, but also a good physical, and this should be part of your physical in any case, I would say. It doesn't matter if it's a cat or the D word, but... Uh, <laughs> It, 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 it's so easy to be drawn by the thing that you think is abnormal, like the teeth are bad or whatever, and then forget all those steps that we need to do. While those insidious diseases like chronic kidney disease are much more dangerous than any of the things that you normally see. So uh, that's a very, very good point. And, and Sherry, so a cat comes into your clinic. Um, what, what is your normal worker?
0: Um, so just because of the types of cases I'm seeing, I'm I'm not seeing, you know, Bob the cat that's just coming in, uh, for for a, a proper veterinary type thing. Um, basically, we see mostly uh, secondary or tertiary referrals, and so the cats that we see are sick. I mean, they come in. You know, we had one that I was just checking on, and his creatinine was twenty, so clearly not a chronic kidney disease kitty, but stones and ureters and obstruction. Um, but typically, when they come in, if with my chronic. Di- kidney disease cats. We bring them in. um, Now, typically, I used to sit down with the owners and talk about everything and go through, you know, what they've been eating and how they've been urinating and how they've been acting and sleeping. Um, Now we bring the kitty in and do that over the phone, unfortunately, (laughs) Um, for the the foreseeable future anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, But typically, we start with a physical exam. And then honestly, most of the time that we run our labs and as as the labs are running, we perform an ultrasound, most of the cats, are, well, not most, I would say about half of the cats that I deal with with chronic kidney disease do have some degree of nephroliths, of stones in their kidneys and or ureters. Um, the other half oftentimes will have some mineralization, but I think people underestimate how prevalent calcium oxalate stones in cat kidneys are. Mm. And you know, it's the age old chicken egg argument, isn't the kidney disease causing the calcium oxalate or is it the calcium oxalate leading to the kidney disease? I think it's both. Um, I think these cats are forming stones differently. And so I think there's a lot of things at play. Not all humans make stones the same way, and certainly not all cats do. But but no, that so that, and then the other thing that we do on every single cat every time is get a urine analysis, get a urine sample. Um, and we've got uh, the ability here to look at the sediment immediately, and that's that tells us so much. I mean if you do have them getting urinary tract infections you find it immediately. Um, So it it just gives us a lot of information.
1: And what is your favorite way to get the urine?
0: I do cystocentesis just because with most cats you can feel the bladder really easily and I and cats I most of the time I do a little better without ultrasound than I do with ultrasound because I like to hold the bladder. Um, But so cystocentesis is usually my favorite. Most cats will not pee on demand, so it's not like you can take them outside like you can with poor dogs. Um, so, and depending on what you're going to analyze that urine from, it's better to have a cystocentesis in, in many cases, and, and certainly in some cases, it's not it's not the best. But.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that, 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 those are all good tips. Um, and, and, and we often get a question when we do, when we talk about cystocentesis, that people are always worried that you'll hurt the bladder or that it will leak or whatever. What's your experience with that?
0: I, I can tell you, I mean, there are all these horror stories about cystocentesis of causing vagal reactions or hitting the aorta or something like, that. I mean, that's, dude that could happen. And it's probably, you know, it's going to ruin your day. Um, not to mention the kitties, but, but I think most of the time it's a very, very safe procedure. And honestly, I wish I had the, well, it's not a video anyway, but I wish I could show you pictures of, we routinely, when we have uh, dogs or cats come in for cystoscopy, we'll get a urine sample before we start the cystoscopy. So before they're placed under anesthesia and started on IV fluids, we will get our urine First, before they're ever sedated, so we do the cystocentesis, get the urine, and then you know, 20 minutes later, we're we're doing the cystoscopy. And if you could see the little tiny dot on the wall of the bladder, it's tiny. It's very very tiny. 20 a 22 gauge hole in a bladder is is very small.
1: Yeah, so even you don't because with cystoscopy you blow up the bladder and yes. you're not even afraid. So you shouldn't be afraid just to stick a little needle in anything. Uh,
0: Absolutely is. not. Absolutely, and even even the the long held debate of for obstructing male cats, for blocked cats, you know, do you do a decompressive cystocentesis or not? And you know, people have been fighting this for years. It's it's. I mean, there are two camps, and I call them the stickers and the non-stickers. Yes. Um, <laughs> they just—they just finished a study, a retrospective study, looking at these cats, and none of the cats had issues with it. Um, what they did—people always say, "Oh, they've got—they've got, they've got um, abdominal infusion afterwards. They're leaking from their." What they found is 15% of these cats have abdominal infusion anyway. Yeah. Before anybody touches them, just because of the inflammation from the bladder. So, it,
3: Dr. It's Lewich a, has his uh, his balloon trick that he shows. Yes which he frightened me with. I was sitting in the front row at one of his seminars and he started with the balloon. I don't like balloons. I was like, what is he doing with that thing? But he never blew it up. So he proved his point. Yes, and, I, I love his
1: balloon. And, and, and he has this knitting needle that he kind of yeah. pierces the balloon with and the balloon stays intact. It's, it's yeah. quite impressive.
3: It was very impressive. <laughs> yeah,
1: Dr. Lulich has a lot of these tricks that make things much more, uh, you know, Appeasing to the eye but it, it's a really good point because a lot of people are worried about it and i think it's it's you know i'm definitely a sticker um <laughs> and i got a lot of those cats obviously because of the emergency surgery that sometimes follows um mm-hmm. but uh, yeah i think uh, uh stabilizing those cats is so much more important than you, you know you cannot start you cannot infuse them with a lot of fluids if their bladder is that huge uh, so uh yeah that 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 is great Kelly, any uh, any questions?
3: Oh, I don't have. think I have any specific questions about that aspect. Although this is not completely kidney related, but in the topic of using your ultrasound um, to take your cysto, I recently I had a, got an ultrasound about five years ago and started using it for my cystocentesis. And I noticed that the cats are more comfortable. So a lot of these older cats that were drawing urine on seem to have you know, arthritis in their hips, maybe they have spondylosis. And when we're doing a blind stick, you're holding that bladder a lot, with a lot more pressure. Yep. Have you noticed a difference in how the cats react when you're doing a cysto
0: with the ultrasound where you're not pushing, you know, I think, honestly, I think with the ultrasound, they probably are a bit more comfortable, but we're usually doing at the end of a urinary tract ultrasound that we've just finished. So yeah. it, it's a toss up because by then most cats, we've, we've, we've reached <laughs> our patients. I mean, you have a very, very specified time frame for kitty, when you're trying to get ultrasounds done in percentage. Oh, no, yeah. so hard yeah. It's hard to say. But I, I agree with you with their arthritis. We often don't think about that in cats because they don't show us outward, you know, a lot of outward signs. I mean, they may yeah. start to walk a little bit like a raccoon, but that's, that. usually they have pretty severe arthritis by the time you see that. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. Just a
1: so now we have done all the diagnostics or at least the, 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 the first diagnostics, what are you really looking for? So how can you help other veterinarians to spot this disease earlier? I know that one thing is, and, and I would like to talk about the new test that we have a little bit too. So first the SDMA, but also uh, the, you know, the AI algorithm that uh, another com- company is, uh, is providing. So let's talk about a little bit about, and then of course the thing that you already talked about was the trend. The trend is really important, but what should people look for?
0: Both of us? One of our, okay. I think. I mean, honestly, I think if you've got a cat coming in, and certainly with the way things are going right now, some people may not have the money to do lab work every time they come in. But if you've got an older cat, on physical exam, palpate those kidneys. Mm-hmm. And if they feel, it, well, if they're different sizes, then you definitely need to intervene because they're. I can almost, I don't want to say guarantee you, but it's highly likely that that cat is going to have some either a history of a ureteral obstruction or at least stone. So if you palpate kidneys and they're different sizes, you need to look further. Um, but as far as with ultrasound, if you're seeing chronic changes in those kidneys, even if the lab work, even if that creatinine is within your little bar range that you get, um, look back to see what the prior creatinine was. And that should be done automatically with every patient. Um, like Kelly said, she has graphs for all of hers. Um, you mentioned, touched on the, the two new tests. We know that SDMA is gonna go up earlier with chronic kidney disease, not all of them, but the majority of them, you're going to see that go up earlier. And if I have a cat that comes in, even if it still has the ability to concentrate at urine, if I see a, an elevated SDMA and I can pair that with some changes on on ultrasound that look like chronic renal changes, that's a cat that I'll tra- I transition early to a diet because I think it, the, I always tell people the sing- single most important thing you can do for a cat or dog with kidney diseases, put them on a renal diet because it, it manages so many of the complications. Um, if it's an animal that you do blood work and you just get an elevated SDMA, and I wouldn't immediately switch it to diet then because that could have been transient. Um, the only reason I say I would is because I've ultrasounded and seen chronic changes on on ultrasound. So then I believe that SDMA is an early marker. Thanks so
1: SDMA, uh, sorry, Kelly, SDMA elevation on its own. Um, are you repeating that later, or how do you exclude that as being, you know, just a one-time abnormality?
0: If if the if the creatinine is similar to what it had been prior on the cat, or if you don't have a prior, which is what happens most of the time, is you just have this elevated SDMA. And um, the, the, on the website, IDX has got a little algorithm of what to do when you see this. But to, you know, to break it down, basically what I would do with a single elevation of SDMA. If that animal is concentrating its urine and everything else looks okay, I would still recheck it. I'd really stress to those owners that I want to see this patient again in in three months, maybe to recheck it. Um, if it's an older cat and I see the SDMA up and maybe the urine's not quite concentrated and maybe the creatinine's on the upper end of normal, that's an animal I'm going to get back within a month to check. If the creatinine's upper end of normal in a cat, because most, I shouldn't you can't argue with normal ranges because of how they're set, but most normal ranges to me, the the upper end is far too high for a cat. Um, and so I think most of them, if, if cats don't walk around with creatinines of two for fun, um, I think that's too high. I mean, there's specific grids that might, but but um, I don't think in general, I think you see that. So I will have them come back again.
3: Well, I was going to ask you. Uh, so, I mean, I know probably some of the answers to this, but with the SDMA, you know, we, we always talk about the fact that it's not impacted by muscle wasting. Uh, but what are your thoughts on the other things that impact it, like dehydration, um, anything else that people should be aware of when they're looking at the SDMA?
0: pretty much how I treat it. And that's a really good point is that it's not impacted by muscle wasting, but it is, it's a, it's a filtration marker. And I promise not to get into too much physiology, but, but it's a marker of glomerular filtration, just like BUN and creatinine. They have nothing to do with the kidneys whatsoever, except it's the only way that well, except for the urea, but it's the only way that they can leave the body. Um, so, so creatinine and SDMA are, are very similar. So anything that's going to affect your filtration is going to affect your SDMA so dehydration as you said, hypotension things like that um, but the the one thing that is good about SDMA is you don't get a decline over time with it because of of dietary or because of muscle wasting um, right. so in general anything that would affect creatinine is going to affect SDma with the exception of the muscle wasting which is which honestly is the most important thing for us for especially with these little cats because they just tend to you know they can look fine and then all of a sudden there, there's not much of them <laughs> so
1: so sdma is a is a really good test for early kidney disease let's talk a little bit about the new algorithm that is you know there too
0: i don't have a whole lot of clinical experience experience with it but i'm um, i have you know looked at it and looked at the procedure for it and it's I think it's good in that it makes people look. If you have something that flags things and says, "Hey, this animal may have kidney disease. You need to look a little little deeper." I think it's very, very helpful. If you're already like Kelly is plotting out creatinins over time and looking at, then you're you're doing what the robot did or or the computer did, the algorithm did. So, it, I think it can become it can become your your plots, and it will tell you to look if you're seeing, seeing trends on things going up. But I think, honestly, it's kind of like when SDMA first came out, if you're watching these animals really carefully, maybe you would have seen the trend up in creatinine, but oftentimes we don't have that. So what this does is give us an indication that yes, this animal may have kidney disease, we need to look further. Even if all the values are within the normal range, if, they're, if enough of them are trended in the upwards, then the AI is helpful.
1: So I, I I think that uh, that one of the things that they claimed was that uh, you could um, see the changes two years before. And that's. Sounds like. Sounds I, like a, okay. Yeah,
0: I think I think if you're trending your creatinines, you're going to see them too. Um, okay. because these are these are, and I I know, and again, I do not have a whole lot of clinical experience with the algorithm, and so I don't want to sound dismissive or anything like that. But I think if you're you know, taking blood work on these animals every year or every six months and looking at the trend, you're going to see a creatinine go from 1 to 1.2 to 1.4 to 1.6 and you'll see it trending up. So hindsight's always twenty twenty. Of course you're going to identify it earlier if you look back at things. But so I think I think being very careful with monitoring these animals, particularly when they're older and watching their weights and, and watching their values, I think you can... You can identify them as well so and i the algorithm itself i have haven't used a lot in the clinical setting um so how much better it's going to be at identifying these early cases i'm not sure what i do like about it is that it's going to make people look at these earlier cases and even if they don't don't have kidney disease the fact that it made you look (laughs) is is for me a big big deal yeah
1: yeah that makes a lot
3: of so much people are looking at that normal range right I am a consultant on Vin and I see that a lot. I'll say, Oh, your cat looks like it might have some kidney issues. And they're like, but the creatine's in the normal range. So if these types of indices flag it for people, that's helpful to get to early.
1: And it's interesting that you say this, Kelly, because that's that's something that triggers me immediately. People are so stuck on B U N and Creatinine. You know, it is like as if this was drilled in their head. And now we have these new tests, but people don't seem to trust them as much as BUN, creatinine, while we know that they're so much more sensitive.
0: And yeah, that's just, I think, what people are used to. People don't like change. Um, Sometimes change is good.
3: Well, it's also nice if you can make use of all of those things together, right? I mean, you don't want to work in a vacuum just looking at creatinine. If you have SDMA to look at, if you have an index, if you have BUN, the USG, all those things together work have so much more power to tell you things about the cat.
1: Absolutely. So the last question I have for you all is, um, we used to do chlomera filtration rates and you know, all sorts of other tests. Say something about that. Are they completely gone or you know, do we have to worry about them or is this what we need before we start talking therapy?
0: If somebody could give me an easy glomerular filtration rate determination for cats and dogs, I would just tap out and retire. I would be so happy. Um, But um, (laughs) unfortunately, we just don't have a good system for, for cats and dogs. And we measure them, and we do them here lots of times for animals that are in studies. Very, very rarely I will do them on animals that, you know, animals we're training to be service dogs. We want to scan them very, very early to make sure everything's okay. Um, but most of the time we're not doing them. And they're cumbersome, they take a long time, um, or or they take multiple blood draws. And cats just are not okay with filtration determination. You can do it, you can absolutely do it, but I think as far as in a clinical setting, it's it's just not a feasible thing to do. What we do, is, or what they've been trying for years to come up with a glomerular filtration rate determination equation, like they do in humans. They take your blood work, they look at who you are, how old you are, and throw your creatinine into a formula, and it spits out a GFR, and it's called the eGFR. You'll see that on your lab work sometimes. We just—you can't do that with dogs and cats. It doesn't work. Kelly, mm. no. do you measure GFRs at all for these guys? Oh, no, <laughs> <laughs> never
3: had that opportunity i live in a pretty small city, so I'm lucky if my clients are doing
0: testing every six months. Yeah. And again, people sometimes will you know call me with things and sheepishly say, oh, we haven't done a GFR. I'm like, me neither. I'm not going <laughs> to. So no, I agree. I think of of the tests. Yeah, it would be great, but do we really need an exact GFR? Is that going to change what we're going to do? And yeah. the answer to that is no. I mean, what we want to look at are, are trends and I, I'm, you know, whether it's off by mil per minute is not going to change what I'm going to to do.
1: This has been really, really good. We're already at time. So uh, sorry to interrupt here. Uh, uh, Thank you so much, Sherry, uh, for this. And, you know, we didn't even talk about therapy yet, but we will in two weeks. I'm very excited to have you back in two weeks to talk about, and you know, now we know how to diagnose these uh, chronic kidney cats. Uh, now we need to start treating them. And I also would like to next week or in two weeks to talk a little, uh, next week as a matter of to talk a little bit about uh, the, uh, what we do with the acute renal failures too, because that's a whole different story. So thank you so much. Thank you, Kelly, for being a great co-host.
3: Thank you, Yolo, I've had a and blast.
1: We'll see you next week. <laughs>
3: Yes, thanks Sherry. Thank you.
0: Thank everybody.
2: Dr. Yola Kerpenstein is a diplomat of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at G-V-E-T-S-X. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge